Welcome to AACP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at AACP, and I'm one of your hosts. Hey, everybody. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist and the executive editor for journals at ASCP. So today we're going to be talking about ASCP's vision for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, we've got some really great guests that I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Melissa Upton. I'm an anatomic pathologist, emeritus pathologist at University of Washington in Seattle. I've been an ASCP volunteer for a long time. I'm an ASCP past president, and I'm currently chairing the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. I've in the past served on the Commission for Continuing Professional Development. Hello, I'm Tanya Norwood. I am ASCP's Chief Officer for Marketing and Membership. I'm also the Chief Officer for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and the Staff Lead for the DEI Committee at ASCP. Hello, my name is Mohammed Abdelmonem, Blood Bank Specialist, ASCP Certified, the Laboratory Transfusion Service and a Reference Laboratory Supervisor at Stanford Healthcare. Also volunteer with the ASCB with the Diversity and Equity Inclusion Committee, as well as the Continual Professional Development Committee. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Before we get our conversation rolling, I just need to get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide, you guessed it, continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit, and physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with their extent and their participation in the activity. All right, so now let's get the ball rolling here. So often, whenever we do these podcasts, I like to kind of define what we're talking about just so we, we're we on the same page, our listeners are on the same page. So I'd like for you guys to kind of define diversity, equity, and inclusion and mention why we need the three separate terms. Actually, I'll kick the conversation off. So, well, one, I want to kind of mention, so with like diversity and inclusion, sometimes people use those terms or think of those terms as if they're two interconnected concepts, but actually, you know, they're not. And so we were being very intentional about ensuring that we speak to both because there are um, not only difference in meanings, but difference in strategies and such that align to each one of those terms. So with diversity, that there, in essence, is at the highest level, you know, it's, it's about representation, right? You know, the makeup of whatever the entity is, whether we're talking about membership, ASCP's membership, whether we're talking about ASCP's governance, ASCP's staff, you know, what does that look like? You can do the breakdown based on, you know, various factors, in essence, under demographics, for example. When you talk about inclusion, that there is more about how well individuals feel as though their contributions, their thoughts, opinions are received and represented within a group? How well do they feel as though they are valued and respected and can exist and interact with others within the group where they feel as though they can be their authentic selves? That's where we have diversity and inclusion. And then we go into equity, you know, that there is making sure that individuals have resources. When you think of the group, right, a group of individuals, 
how do they or how are the resources or what are those specifics of their needs, right? Understanding what their needs are and ensuring that individuals have those particular resources to be able to achieve their full potential. So in essence, it somewhat levels the playing field so that there's no disadvantaged groups, in essence, when you're thinking of equality. I'll stop there and let the other panelists kind of share and jump into the conversation. I have a quick example about equity. When I first started training in pathology, microscopes had a fixed head and people either put books under the microscope to raise it up or they would scrunch down in their chairs. And there were residents in my program, I'm about 5'1", there were residents who were 6'8". Well, one size did not fit all. And now people have floating heads on microscopes. There are a lot more ergonometric designs We used to have fixed chairs. We didn't even have office chairs that could be raised up and down. And that's a simple example where equality, if everyone has exactly the same microscope, chair, and desk, really doesn't work for everyone in the organization. We have different body types. We have different learning styles. We have different needs to maximize ourselves. Similarly, I had zero statistics training in college. Other people had a master's in statistics. To thrive in our workplace, we need different skill sets to be able to thrive. And some of us will need some focused mentoring and attention in statistics or grant writing. And other people who have those skills might need more focused attention in emotional intelligence or in how to do the visual link between what they see on the microscope and the cognitive decision-making. But that's a simple example from what I do, which is anatomic pathology. That's a great example. Yes. Thank you. Mohammed. did you have any other comments? Actually, Tanya, very well said it. I think from my experience is equity is you know that your voice is heard, you are counted for regardless of what ethnicity you are, what is your colors or religion or any other factor that that is come into the pictures. So with the three term, I think it, it's really well defined what we want to get to point across. So diversity plus inclusion and equity, all of them is important term in the process. So it's one term only. I don't think it will be it will be just enough. Yeah, and just as a piggyback on, you know, what was stated, and I want to go back to Melissa's example that she gave. And one of the things that I've experienced, and even through my own training and understanding and trying to educate myself more so in this space, a lot of people use the term equality and equity interchangeably. And again, wanted to point out that difference. As she was stating, you know, everyone gets a microscope. Right. So that, in essence, is equality. Everyone is getting a microscope, but in essence, they, the need in terms of how they need to use it, you know, varies based on those individuals. So, again, when you're thinking of equality, it's about being specific to individuals' needs, ensuring individuals have their needs are considered in the equation versus everyone being considered the same. And so I'm just making sure that I wanted to kind of point that out because in her, she gave a great example. And that's really something clear that individuals need to understand because there is, you know, people feel as though those are interchangeable terms and they really are not. Yeah, a really good meme I've seen floating around the interwebs is um, people of three different heights trying to look over a fence to watch a baseball game. And equality is everybody getting the same size box to step on to get to look over the fence, but not everyone can see the fence, but equitable when it's equitable, people have different size boxes so that they can all see over the fence to watch the ball game. 
Ultimately, you take down the fence. Ultimately, you take ultimately down the fence. Ultimately, they're included in playing in the game. You know, ultimately, you take down that fence so they're not on the outside looking in, right? That's the- yeah. Or if you need the barrier, you make it transparent, like a chain link fence and not a not a wooden fence. Yeah, I think absolutely. One of, the, one of the ways that I can easily distinguish between diversity and inclusion myself is that diversity is the what, right? Tanya, what you said, the, the demographics, who is who is in the room. And then inclusion is the how. So that's really where the organizational culture comes to play of how are we, now that we have all these people in the room or at our in our organization, what exactly are we doing with them? Are they really included in the sense of, are they comfortable? Are they first, are they comfortable sharing their opinions, their thoughts, their experiences? But then also if they are, are we really listening to them? Are we really, is everybody's voice equal? And I think that's, just how, you know, in ultimately, of course, for all organizations and, you know, not to get too idealistic, but for the world, <laughs> that's what, you know, we want to create. But then if we look at specifically laboratory medicine, pathology and laboratory medicine, why are these concepts important? I wanted to just say something about the diversity and inclusion before we move to the lab, which is that a lot of organizations have gotten on board with making statements about diversity, or they'll have one or two people from historically excluded groups. They'll have one woman on their board of directors. They'll have one Black person in their advertising. But when those individuals aren't really included, what it does is actually make the situation worse because the individuals who are essentially used or exploited for their demographic to highlight the company's diversity, become even more frustrated than they, because it's masking. It's putting a big mask. It's literally a whitewash over exclusion. Oh, we're not excluding people. We have a few people on our board, but those people aren't ever really valued. They don't really, if they speak up, they're punished. That actually has a, the reverse effect. And some people use the term performative diversity, when people are performing, oh, we're diverse. See, we have this Asian woman on our board of directors. Well, that that's not really inclusion. That's really not answering the questions. Now, when we get to the lab, we actually have a much bigger context for our work. 25% of training programs for laboratory professionals have closed since 2008. We have a nationwide shortage of people coming into both laboratory medicine and pathology. We know we do great work and we do work that helps patients. And yet during this pandemic, a lot of us were extremely distressed to find out that rolling out tests didn't reach the population as a whole. There were huge populations that didn't have access to the wonderful work we do. So we have a workplace shortage. We also have a problem with equity, meaning access of services. We have healthcare disparities that are disproportionately affecting large populations of people. And those are populations of people who for the most part are not represented in large numbers in our profession. If we really wanna transform the way we deliver care, we have to include members of those populations in the redesign of our healthcare system and of the way we do business the way we formulate our test strategies, our test rollouts, 
But in addition, if our profession is going to thrive, we're bleeding people. We need to. Ha- we really need to bring in groups of people who haven't been able to participate in our career. And I'm talking about people of all backgrounds. We have a gap of care in rural areas too, and there are many poor white communities that are just as disenfranchised as people from non-white backgrounds. So this is a nationwide and actual global crisis in healthcare access, healthcare disparities. We're only going to address it when we bring in the ideas, the creativity, and the experience on the ground of people who are living in those communities. Yeah, actually, I just want to piggyback on what Melissa just said there. And I think when, when you talk about you know, how does this affect the lab, right? Pathology and laboratory medicine. You know, one of the things or aspects in terms of, you know, how do you ensure that the individuals that are working in the lab are reflecting the communities that they serve, right? How do you, you know, ensure that you're, you're creating a profession where there's appreciation for individuals and allowing them to thrive and showing how you respect you know, them and their thoughts and engaging them in such a way that they feel as though that they're part of the the solution. I mean, I think the, in essence, from a, you know, a profession standpoint, it's all about, you know, creating this culture, a culture where, you know, not only is it representative of the actual the community that they serve, like this, let's just think about the demographics of laboratory medicine and pathology. Just let's just take the U.S. census as a benchmark. When we look at our, our membership, if we even look at the profession, you know, and think about underrepresented groups in medicine, you know, African-Americans, Latinx, Native American, they are definitely underrepresented within this group, you know, within this profession. You know, why is it important? How do we level the playing field so that they, in essence, can be pulled into the profession so that as patients and such that come into the, come into particular hospital systems and such, or even just being a part of the entire healthcare ecosystem, having that voice of this, this group that's diverse, that can share their knowledge, opinions and such. And again, to uh, mimic or explain, you know, or provide insights as to what's happening in various communities. To add to what Dr. Upton and Tanya said, you know, being an immigrant and coming from a different country to immigrant to United States, I experienced that myself. So it's not just to have people from different backgrounds and ethnicity in the laboratory, uh, also the selection, you know, it is if we are looking at the uh, residency, the pathology residency programs, it is somehow has some implicit bias on the selection and reviewing and application. The same thing with the laboratory professional rotations and, you know, hiring. So there is some implicit bias that is in the laboratory, and some people just do the bias without even knowing they are doing it. When I first moved to the United States, there was a lot of, I have an accent, I have a foreign degree, and also there is you know, people will look at you like, you know, you might, you, you want to work as a full botanist or you just want to work like data entries. Uh, they don't look at you like you, you know, you have a degree, you have value. So I think, you know, there's the, the work that we do at, at the ASCB for, for education and awareness is very important to change that. Yeah, absolutely. So what, you know, getting a little bit more specific, what is some of the work that we're, we're doing at ACP and what is ACP's strategic vision around DEI. Can you all speak to that a little bit? So I'll kick things off in that 
You know, I really would say that we've, we as an organization have been on this journey intentionally, right? I'm like not saying that this was not part of our, our thoughts, opinions, and how we moved forward and planned and such, but truly intentionally creating uh, a strategic plan around DEI for about three years. And I want to take this opportunity now to really give credit where credit is due, where um, Melissa, Dr. Upton, our, our past president, you know, she was truly one of the visionaries behind this, the initiative, you know, along with our CEO, Dr. Holiday, you know, in terms of really being intentional about creating specific strategies and, and tactics you know, help advance, help our members more so, you know, work within this DNI space. And so, you know, when you think of DNI, it's just, it becomes overwhelming when you think about all the different potential strategies, tactics, ideas, research, whatever. You know, we really took a point in terms of it wasn't about us trying to figure out how or what other organizations were doing. We really focused on who we were as an organization and wanted to be about the change that we wanted to see within this particular profession. And so we intentionally focused on four pillars, right? One was, you know, building awareness of pathology and and laboratory medicine, going back to what someone mentioned, what we mentioned earlier on, you know, within this podcast about addressing, you know, pipeline issues. You know, we have an extensive volunteer network And we're using that to be the opportunity to introduce new individuals to the profession, whether that's, you know, junior high students, high school students, individuals at the community college level, but leveraging a network of our our volunteers, what we call our career and pathology ambassadors, as a way to do this local outreach to build that awareness, to try to address the issues of pipeline in terms of building awareness about the profession. So under others understand that this are opportunities for careers or career opportunities. But also in addition to that, just being really intentional about also hitting these underrepresented areas, right? Not only are we trying to educate, you know, or introduce this profession to everyone, but being very intentional that we're hitting, you know, African-American, Latinx, and Native Americans, for example, because we know we're underrepresented in those areas if we're going to use a U.S. census as our benchmark. The next thing I would say, the next pillar is really about creating mentorship opportunities. We have a mentorship program that provides that support and learning, you know, that will assist for professional development. And that there, in essence, you know, you do this work to recruit people into the profession, right? Here's an opportunity to now you need to do the work in terms of how do you retain these individuals, right? And providing them with the support and such that's necessary that will help them with their individual growth. So the mentorship program is basically set up to to do just that. The next thing is about educating our members. You know, a lot of this and all of the work that needs to take place under DEI, individuals need to be educated in terms of, you know, what are those elements under DEI that will give them the foundational, that fundamental understanding of the what, you know, so they can drive change within their institutions. And it's really not necessarily about, and I want to say it's not necessarily about, it is about driving change, but the, the, the thing that we're really forcing or trying to be 
you know, helping our members to do is to make sure that it's sustainable change, right? Providing them with the education to help them to understand, you know, here are ways to ensure that you have a diverse workforce. If you're having this diverse workforce, how do you ensure that it's inclusive so that you retain this diverse workforce? How do you address some of these institutional issues that are counter to some of the DEI initiatives that are, are within your particular institution. So again, educating our members so that they, and it's not necessarily just about theory. How do we give them truly tools that they can take into their institution? And so you talk about the, not necessarily theory, but applicability, right? Ensuring that you're giving them education content and such that they can then take that learning and then do that within their particular institutions to, to drive sustainable change. And then the fourth thing of our, 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 the fourth strategic pillar of our strategy is all about partnering. You know, partnering with other institutions, partnering with other organizations, associations where there's alignment or synergies amongst our major strategic initiatives. Um, for example, I've been working with the Society of Black Pathologists, right? There's a lot of synergies there um, with that particular group, and we're working with them to educate our members and to try to drive change. So again, you know, there's a lot of work that can be done on this space. ASAP has chosen to truly focus on four things, which is awareness, mentorship, education, and then partnership. But that's kind of where we are today. This our strategic initiatives are constantly evolving and changing to ensure that we are meeting the needs of our members and providing them with the information and um, context that's necessary to you know, provide change or drive change, impactful change you know, within the profession. So we've talked a lot about the DE&I vision for the pathology laboratory medicine as a whole, right? Like for the profession, and for our members and stuff. Tanya, I want to kind of touch base with you about what we're doing like internally at ASCP with our staff. Like what are some sort of DE&I initiatives for us? Because I think you made a good point earlier with as times change, like your mission as an organization has to change somewhat. Not that we're obviously overnight going to become a completely different society with a completely different mission, but within that mission, it changes. So can you talk a little bit about what we're doing internally? I just wanted to segue from what Tanya gave such a good description of our strategy, but I wanted to put something in, Kelly, that is really, I think, quite critical for us to remind ourselves of is ASCP's history. As we're about to celebrate, we are celebrating our 100th year. So why did we start? We started in 1922 because anybody could do a lab test. There was no requirement for any qualifications. Anybody could hang out a shingle and said, come get your blood drawn. So the quality was just terrible. So ASCP started so that there could be a profession of people who would make sure that patients got good care. So we are not ever going to change our patient-centric mission. That has always been our center. It is our big foundation. The pillars that Tanya talked about are on that ground, that hallowed ground of our relationship with the patients. And that is very important because everything we've ever done as an organization has been patient-centered. We always go back to that on our board meetings and any decision, is this good for our patients? If it's good for our members, 
it also has to be good for our patients. We never make a decision that puts our members above the patients because that's why we're here. So that is a very important part of this. And when we talk about education, another thing we're doing is we're deliberately recognizing that, well, we started doing education. Why? Back in the 20s to become superb practitioners. So we first started the laboratory professional courses and the certification. We then launched and split off a group to be the American Board of Pathology to certify pathologists. So ASCP launched both of these major groups that certify the quality of the practitioners in the lab. That was very important, but education has also been such an important pillar because the questions that we ask are what drive our growth individually and collectively. And so your questions are critical, Kelly, because these are what we really want is we want our members all engaged in asking these questions. What do I not understand about DEI? What do I not understand about taking care of this population of patients? Why is one group suffering and not another? We could talk about the staff next, but that critical, I just want to say we're our mission is, those missions are never going to change. What's going to change, what's going to change over time is nothing in life ever stands still. So we're going to be facing, we didn't have to face a pandemic like this one in 1922 that had just come out of the flu, which probably fed in very seriously to their desire to form the organization. I've never thought about that but before now, but I bet that, I bet it did. They just come out of the influenza epidemic. Yeah, just as a side note, yeah, way, way before the pan- this pandemic, I was kind of a pandemic geek and I read a few books on the 1918 and a, and a lot of diagnostics came out of that and it, it certainly hastened, I think, I suspect it hastened our formation. Exactly. I'm going to let Tanya answer some of the questions about the staff, but I really wanted to put that in there because I'm so excited about the 100th anniversary, but it's also a really great opportunity for us to remind ourselves collectively, who are we and why are we here in the first place? We're here to take care of patients. And one of the reasons DEI is so important to me is we're excluding our patients in large populations from helping us be the best that we can be in thinking about how do we actually improve? How do we serve our populations? Well, we can't do it right now if we don't include those populations in partnership with us as members with us on our advisory boards in all different types of formats. We have patient champions. We're already including patients in some ways in our organization, but we also we need to have more members coming from those populations who have not had a voice in designing the next steps that we need to take. And, and I also just want to rant for one more minute here about the fact that Tanya and I have talked privately about the fact that people will, members will call up and say, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing X, Y, or Z? And we say, all right, my answer is, who is ASCP? It's the people listening to this podcast. If you feel passionate about something, come on in. You know, we're all working really hard as volunteers. We need you engaged. If you see something that we don't see, you see a need that we're not meeting, you have a perspective about DEI or anything else, unnecessary testing or how we could be advocating to our legislators, we need you to come work with us. Don't work in isolation. Come and find other people like us. Talk with us. Work with us. I mean, that's the whole idea of inclusion. That's the whole idea of DEI. Get this energy, get these ideas. It's not an us, them. 
come on in and work with us. Well, that's actually awesome and great context to add to the conversation. So thank you for for sharing that. I would say for the, you know, transitioning to ACP staff, right? So a lot of what we've been talking about has been about the profession, our members, but, you know, how do we then take some of this and ensure that this is happening on the operational side of the business with the ASCP staff? And so before I get into kind of some of what we've been doing from a strategic standpoint, let me just very be very clear and transparent in that I'm not working by myself in doing this and identifying this. You know, I'm working in collaboration from the staff side of things, working with HR. So we have our chief legal officer who's part of that team, Dr. Loti who's on the call here is part of that team. And so our director of HR is a part of that team. So, you know, one of the things that we did in terms of before I get into, you know, what we've done is more so I want to focus on the approach that we took in terms to drive what we've done. We basically took a look at a lot of the strategies and such that were developed for the membership and saw that there was a lot of alignment, not necessarily from the membership standpoint, but for the staff standpoint. So we went through this point of where it was more so about discovery, right? You know, understanding where we are today. What does the diversity look like, you know, at various within departments, you know, within various levels within the organization and really kind of did more of a this discovery phase in essence was just to level set to kind of understand where are we today, right? And what does that landscape look like? There were conversations at then the the leadership level? How do we then get alignment at the leadership level to talk about, you know, what is important or essential from the leadership standpoint? What is the change? What is the culture that they're hoping to derive from this, these various initiatives? Understanding perspective, not only of leadership, but of our individual members, right? So going back to, so with the discovery, there was a point of now from the discovery, here's where the where we are today, having conversation with leadership to kind of say, understanding where we are today, this is a change we would like to see tomorrow, getting that consensus at that level. And I just want to make the point that, you know, in essence, for anyone to drive change at any level or within any organization, institution, it has to start at the top. It has to start at the top and then come down so that individuals in the organization understand collectively what is the directive and so that they then can follow suit, but not only understand the directive from the top down, but ensuring that you set up systems so that people are for accountability. Like here, the rules of engagement, how do you assess to ensure that people are then adhering to that? So having those conversations at that, that leadership level to to define that. So that's, you know, in essence, some of the work that we've done today. And then the other thing I would say is that, you know, everything shouldn't be from the top down. How do you ensure that you get, you know, voice, opinions, and thoughts from the bottom up, right? That you have this more holistic view. So one of the things that we've been doing is we've actually identified an internal team, a staff team, right? That is separate from myself and HR and our chief legal officer, that in essence will become the voice of our staff, right? So we're taking, we're making sure that we're including what their needs, their desires, 
are and aligning that to from a strategic standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, what we are trying to achieve and, and connecting the dots. So, you know, the way to kind of get people involved and engaged, you know, is to make them part of the, the process, ensure that they're invested in the process. And so I would say from a staff standpoint, we've been focusing on discovery, you know, understanding what the current state looks like, you know, working with leadership to understand now that we understand what the, the current landscape looks like, how are we now going to change pivot for what we want to see in the future, ensuring that there's measures for accountability to ensure that whatever we set up, you know, is in essence is there's a way to measure or hold individuals accountable for adhering to various policies, procedures and such, but also, which I don't want to discount, which is really critical, ensuring that you're getting the voice of your staff. Ensuring they're making them part of the process so they're invested in the process. So you're not talking at them, but making them, you know, they're coming along with you uh, along this journey. One of the things I really love about working with Tanya is she has the data analytics background and you can hear her talking as she was talking about metrics, accountability, meaning metrics. Like we're not just going to have this symbolic language. We're actually going to look at concrete, specific results But I also want to share that she and I have had many conversations about looking within the organization at how do we help people continue to advance and grow and be excited about the next opportunity in their career. And this goes back to something that Mohammed shared, that people would hear his accent and perhaps not know anything about the training in Egypt, and they would just make assumptions about what he could or couldn't do. And, you know, I think we need to move to a model of our workplaces where we constantly stretch and allow individuals to try new things and to grow on the job. And in fact, there's an article in press, Kelly knows this in AJCP, about what people can do to keep their workforce engaged and working long term. And the best thing you can do is to support people taking additional certifications. This is Dr. Paul Chu has got is the lead article on this lead author on this article, you can help people continue to grow professionally. You can give them new opportunities to gain new skills, new certifications, new leadership opportunities. And we're talking about that at the staff level. You know, you don't put someone in a job and say, well, I'm just going to assume based on the way this person looks or what their CV says that this is what they're capable of. No, no. I mean, inclusion really and equity really involve the kind of respect where we We give people opportunities and we let them speak and we share, we get their ideas. They may have a much better idea of how to do something because they're actually doing that job. I want to ask you, Mohammed, what, if there's anything that you've done in your workplace or any experiences that you've had in terms of like inclusive practices. So I work for Stanford and we have a diversity and inclusion council. I think it's been like four years now in place. We, we created like a working group and that's employee working groups for different ethnicity and background. It is also, we implemented here at Stanford implicit bias training for the manager and supervisor who are responsible for hiring and interview process. Right now we are looking at, you know, de-identifying the resume that when someone is applying, even, you know, just give them a number or a code even if you leave the name, sometimes people can still figure out what is the last name came from or what the ethnicity is. So it's kind of like having a holistic review of the interviewer 
and the identifying the data and the interview will just have the qualification of the person and the selection of the applicant will be based on that. And with providing the, the implicit bias training, I think it is, it's helping a lot with diverse backgrounds. The other thing also that Dr. Upton was talking about is when you assume someone based on their accent or their origin, what they are capable of, and they, they can surprise you of what, what they can do, it is for, for us here at Stanford, I think, you know, getting not even, so we have diversity and inclusion council across for the whole organization. In the laboratory itself, we have our own small committee for diversity and inclusion also. We make sure that every staff member voice is heard and, you know, there is survey that is anonymous survey that people can say what, what they want to say without being identified and without being scared from getting retaliated against. So I think that is some of the things that I see it working for us here at Stanford, you know, and I think most of the organizations start implementing the same strategy across the country too. At University of Washington and in the Department of Laboratory Medicine Pathology, there's a JEDI committee, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, chaired by Dr. Rosana Rizquez. And they have actually just put together search committee guidelines of how to have a search that is holistic, that is fair, that is equitable. And they're working a lot on that, how we, because searches people often have a classic idea of, I want someone who comes from X institutions or someone who people tend to say, pick someone that they're comfortable with at an interview, which includes all kinds of intrinsic biases, but those can also be introvert versus extrovert. And there are lots of different elements here. And so we have a whole, I'm just pulled it up on my computer. We have a two-page set of guidelines that all of the faculty in our department attended a training on how to run a search for laboratory hires, faculty hires. And this is across our entire department. So there's a common set of principles and guidelines to help us. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of piggyback on a couple of things that Muhammad and Melissa both talked about, and, which, and it kind of ties back to the, the training. So when you go into, you're talking about now recruitment, right? You're recruiting individuals into your institution. And so one of the, uh, from a best practice standpoint, when you're thinking of kind of DEI in essence, having panel, having a panel of individuals that are responsible for interviewing individuals. So it's not necessarily just one person now. So you now one person with their one views in terms of how they see and what they see and what they expect is no longer becomes the main point of focus. Now you have multiple individuals that are sharing their concepts and their thoughts and opinions. And it's then from a research standpoint, you know, it's been proven that those panel, having those uh, panels to interview individuals ensures to hold everyone accountable to whatever the criteria is in terms of how we're evaluating individuals and ensuring that that process is fair, right? And the other thing that I wanted to kind of speak to that they were were talking about was, you know, Muhammad was talking about these, you know, anonymous interviews and talking about, you know, so when you go back to inclusivity, you know, and all of us had talked about that and what that looks like, you know, it's not necessarily about policies and procedures, right? It's about the everyday interaction amongst the team to ensure that everyone's, you know, you know, voice is heard, everyone feels respected and valued, you know, I can be my authentic self, you know, within this process, but it's not necessarily just the leadership understanding what that looks like. You need to understand what do your employees feel? 
right? And so I love the fact where Muhammad was saying that they have these anonymous um, surveys because now you're getting the voice of your team members, your employees. You have a view of what you feel like inclusivity looks like. You have a view of terms of how you're implementing that within your organization. But what is the perspective of your employees, right? That there has to be some continuity between what you think and what they feel. Ideally, you know, perception is reality, right? So regardless of what you think about things, if your your staff or team members feel another way, there's a disconnect. So I like the fact that, you know, at Stanford, how they have these anonymous surveys to truly get the voice or understanding or perception of the team members to ensure that what they're trying to do and how they're trying to move, change culture and such is that truly being received in the way that they intended by their employees and their team members? Just to add what, what, to what Tanya was saying, I think it's not just, you know, collecting the data by itself or, you know, distributing this uh, surveys is not really enough to have that inc- inclusion. I think what we, what we do here also follow up with the result with survey with everyone, share the transparency. And that is actually what makes the staff encouraged to do it because, you know, collecting the data and not doing anything with it, it's, they are not going to just, you know, do the survey again. So we follow up with, with the result and make it transparent for everyone. So for anyone has an issue, anyone has a voice, they know that when they, when they will voice it, something will be done about it. That's a great point that Mohammed just made there, right? It's not just about collecting the data, but in terms of what was collected, sharing that back to your employees so they understand how you now create new strategies, new policies, new procedures. How does that now tie back to the information that you share with us, right? So, you know, again, that connectivity is all about this holistic closed loop communication cycle. And it's a different way of doing business. You know, you basically kind of, you know, lifting the covers in terms of how things are being done. No, things are not necessarily being considered and debated and determined at one level and then pushed out. It's truly ensuring that you have the vision of leadership, you have the ideas and thoughts of your team members, and then you're sharing that all back in terms of what that looks like and how those things connect. And based on that connectivity, that continuity of information, this is how we plan to move forward, right? So everyone now, you know, not only understands, but it's more so about having that vested interest. When you have that vested interest of team members, then you are likely to succeed because everyone feels part of the process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, earlier we talked about like performative diversity. If you just collect the data, but don't do anything with it and don't communicate that anything back, it's performative. So it's, then you're not really doing anything. You're just ticking a, a checkbox and says, oh, yeah, well, well, we asked your opinion. I, would, I do want to acknowledge that one of the reasons people have done that in terms of the surveys is it, it honestly, and we talk about this at the beginning of every DEI committee meeting, it takes courage to have uncomfortable conversations. And I think that that, if I had one, one thing to share with people is when you embark on this journey, be prepared to meet yourself in uncomfortable ways, to see your own uncomfortable old biases emerge. It's not fun to realize things that have been motivating me or that have been unconscious in me. It's not fun, but it's really important. And to have those conversations, to have that transparent sharing of the results that Muhammad exemplified, and that, that takes courage. And that's another thing we're really trying to support people with is 
having these painful conversations among each other, with each other, in an organization like ASCP, it's a place where we can recognize that it's not only normal, it's important to face into these uncomfortable conversations because that's where we grow. So what about people who, who want to go and have these conversations and, and increase DI in their workplaces, maybe even in their neighborhoods? Do we have some tools that are already available at ACP to help our members with their exploration of DEI? Well, Lotte, you've built some fabulous tools in the Leadership Institute. I mean, some of the tools that you built before we even launched the DEI initiative are still extremely important for this. You have at least two superb modules on team building, which I got so much out of those because good teams always storm. Good teams mean that not everyone thinks the same way as you. And so the beginning of a good team, a strong team, is always uncomfortable. And yet people want to suppress that. I mean, you have these models in your leadership institute about groupthink and disastrous challenger catastrophe because someone didn't challenge someone who was in a higher position in the hierarchy. And so these things weren't specifically about DEI, if we think about it in demographic or ethnic terms, but this is not just demographic and ethnic terms. It is emotional intelligence. And I think the things you've built in Leadership Institute are just awesome. They can be applied in any setting, especially DEI. But we're trying to build these things. And I think that your questions, kind of question I invite, what do people need? What tools do people want? What questions are difficult for people to grapple with? Muhammad is serving on our Commission for Continuing Professional Development that oversees the whole educational portfolio. Do people need small group role-playing exercises? Do they need podcasts? Do they need to take a course? And I think we're probably yes, 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 and yes, you know. <laughs> but, but what, I mean, I think that's the first step is what do I not understand? What do I find difficult? The first thing is like with any course, we do the gap analysis internally and also with our population. Like, what are the gaps in understanding our knowledge? And this is one of the reasons we're having this conversation with our members today is, what are your gaps? What do you need from us? What Do you have an idea of something you'd like to share with other people? What best practices do you have? And I think we're all feeling our way how to do this well and how to actually engage courageously and lovingly and openly, it's not easy work. But it won't be any easier if we duck it. It's just going to come up in destructive ways. Yeah, you can't avoid these conversations. You mentioned before a little bit, Melissa, that, you know, especially for like a, a white privileged person, sometimes these conversations are hard to have. And whenever you kind of take a look in the mirror and realize like the thoughts and you've done and maybe actions you've done in the past weren't great, but you have to do that work. So on that note, I kind of want to transition into our final wrap-up question, which is uh, where do we go from here? What's the next steps? How do we keep moving forward? So I just want to make one point, and I do feel like this ties to what uh, Melissa was saying earlier and kind of transitions to what you um, are asking in that the key with all of this is how do we educate ourselves? How do we educate ourselves to understand what does it take? 
to create the culture, the environment that we're looking to achieve. Educating yourself in terms of kind of self-reflection, right? How are you with your current internal biases? We all have them. It's not like it's one group or another. All of us have internal biases. Understanding what those internal biases look like, how to ensure that you are checking those internal biases, that they're not then, that they don't necessarily become a deterrence to that culture and that environment that you're trying to, to achieve. So I really, I think the fundamental grounding is truly in education, education and self-awareness and education on principles, policies, and such that I help you to create the culture that you want to see within your particular environment. But one thing that I really want to speak to in particular is about, you know, one of the things that, you know, again, in my course of understanding and learning and how I can then help, you know, educate others is all about allyship. Right. People always want to talk about, you know, how can I do? How can I help? Let's talk about allyship. Allyship, in essence, is the role that individuals play in helping to foster inclusion, you know, diversity and equity. You know, you as the individual, you are affirming that belonging. You're dismantling structural inequalities that exist within, you know, your organization. You're advocating for change. You know that change needs to occur and then you're not necessarily just like, here's what's happening, but you're truly advocating for that. And the one thing that I also want to put in there is that, you know, as you have individuals that are within your your network, your colleagues, especially colleagues that are of people of color, you know, be that sounding board where you listen to them. And not only like listen to them, but truly believe what they feel like they're experiencing, although it's not what you're experiencing because you're not in their shoes. Believe what that is, what that looks like. And then how can then you, you know, ensure that you are helping to drive change? One of the things that, you know, with Martin Luther King, he always talked about, you know, I would say always he talked about a lot of things. But one of the things that resonates with me is that, you know, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. You know, so how do you as individuals understand and know that there are biases that ex- that exist within your system and ensuring that you're, t- you know, that you're trying to be about the changes you want to see and addressing those particular biases. You know, you want to be supportive of individuals who are experiencing these bias and you're not taking a passive seat. You're truly being a part of it, being that voice speaking up. You know, as Melissa was saying earlier, you're being going to be uncomfortable. People that are allies are, they live in the land of, um, they're being uncomfortable. If you're comfortable, that's not an allyship, right? Because when you're uncomfortable, that means you got to speak against things that are not right. So again, those are just small things. Again, educating yourself, understanding what that looks like from a self-awareness standpoint, and then awareness or education that can help, you know, not only yourself, but also your organization. But truly think about being an ally for people and advocating for those who are underrepresented, mistreated, or biases or that exist against them, being speaking up, being an active voice within the conversation for change. Where do we go from here? Okay, so... To add what Tanya was saying, you know, as far as ASCP and my organization, I think, you know, strategy now to just embedded the DEI in all committees and councils that we have. So it's not just we have, a you know, diversity and inclusion committee or council in the organization. It is just we need to have that in every, you know, every single entity or department that we have. So we, some of the representatives from the DEI committee or council 
our representative on leadership meeting or the executive meeting or most of the decision making on the on the institution so just to make sure that there is a voice and there is an equity and there is it's everything there everything that is done on the decision making council or committee that has some kind of diversity and inclusion and what tanya was saying is start with yourself so it's it's not just about you know you know leadership or organization it's about member it's you know being that ally that was Tanya was saying is you don't have to be, you don't have to feel it yourself or experience it yourself. You know, if you think about what happened to Native Americans, you were not there. You didn't know what happened. But for me, if, if you are not Native American, you don't know how it feels like. You need to know how it feels like so you can be an ally and speak, speak for them. And when you see something wrong or something is not right, then you will have the courage to say it. Melissa, any last thoughts? I would, I guess the most, most compelling thing I can share with people who are listening to this podcast is we need you. We need you to join us. We'd love to have you join ASCP. We need you to join this effort wherever you are. If you're in the grocery store and you see the person in front of you in line is from a different background and they call on you first, that happens to me. I just say, you know, this man was waiting before me. This woman was here first. That's a very small thing. But little things like that, notice. Notice and speak up, but join us. This is this can be very challenging work. It can be very uncomfortable work. I feel so grateful to have allies within ASCP with whom I'm working on this. Loti, Muhammad, Tanya and I are all serving on the DEI committee. Kelly's very involved with helping us through her efforts. We need everybody to join us, but also we need to support you. And if you work with us, we can all work together to support each other in this work. It's critically important. It's a world of challenge right now. There's a lot of turmoil, chaos. Some of the worst emotions are emerging in people who are frightened and terrified of climate change and the pandemic and loss of jobs. And we need to be a voice for hope and good in this world. And we can do this together. We are stronger together. You guys inspire me so much. I'm so glad that we had this conversation today. I know that we could talk about this for another three hours, but we're going to wrap it up. I just want to remind our listeners to tell your colleagues about the podcast and uh, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. For those interested in learning more about DEI, join us for our in-person immersion course on leading diversity, equity, and inclusion in Arizona from April 8th through the 10th. You can learn more at acp.org slash immersion courses. And don't forget that you can receive CME and CMME credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ACP store on our website at www.acp.org.